Many years ago, I was leading a Bible study with juvenile offenders, and uh, we were going to study the Gospel of John. I was making some introductory comments about the book and Jesus. Mid-sentence, one of the young men stops me. He says, wait, wait, wait. He said, and he looked right at me, and he said, Mr., he said, who in the hell is this Jesus you're talking about? I was a bit taken aback. Never had somebody ask me in quite that way. <laughs> but also I had brought some assumptions to that group. These young men were all Latino. And I assumed that most of them, because most of the Latino folks that I have known over my lifetime have, have grown up in the church. Many of them have uh, grown up in Catholic families and, and have been part of the Catholic Church, at least as, as young children, and uh, exposed to the teachings of the church. And I assumed exposure to Jesus along the way. This young man was sincere. He meant no disrespect. It was a genuine question. I thought these guys knew about Jesus. And the rest of the guys in the group, they had a little experience, knew that he was some figure, some long time ago, something to do with religion and the church, and for a number of them, something that, that their mom embraced. So, Put yourself in my place. There you sit. And this young man asks you that question. What's your response? Now, I don't really want you to answer that out loud. But I do want you to think about the first thing that pops into your mind. When someone would say to you, so who is Jesus? What is your response? What's, what's the first thing that, that, that comes to you? Remember the story of Matthew 16? Jesus was with his disciples and he asked them, he said, who do people say that I am? He listened to their answers. And then he asked them another question. He said, now what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, piped up, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that was an A-plus answer. That is the answer that Jesus was looking for and implied in those questions that he was asking them. Remember, they were his disciples they were not a part of the rest of the crowd. They had been called by Jesus, set apart to follow Jesus. He was pouring his life into them. And so the assumption there was that those who are disciples, those who follow Jesus, need to know the correct answer to that most fundamental question. Who is Jesus? Now, We've all heard and laughed at that silly story when the question is asked, 
what is brown with a bushy tail and lives in a tree, we understand that the, that the student in school says, well, that's a squirrel. The student in Sunday school thinks to him or herself, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus because that's always the right answer. <laughs> so for the follower of Jesus, it's, um, it's not so much a question of, is it Jesus? But it's a question of who is Jesus. The follower has signed on to follow Jesus. And the critical question is one of whom that follower believes that he or she is following. That's what Jesus was after when he asked that question to his first century followers. And the question is still important for us. And after Peter gave that answer. Jesus told Peter and the disciples that he was going to build his church on the rock, the truth of Peter's confession. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. The truth was that he was indeed the Messiah. He was God's chosen and anointed one, and Jesus was about building this this force called the church in the world that would be grounded on that truth. And in this series, the series that we have been talking about, DNA at Applewood Community Church, those things that, that are distinctive to us as a church, and, and, and not because we want to exalt in them and, and, and say, oh, how wonderful we are, but, but we believe that, that God has woven these things into the fabric of who we are as a congregation. He, he weaves DNA into the fabric of every congregation, and there are lots of similarities. And yet we have looked at some ways that, that they, they seem to come out as, as fairly distinctive in who we are, things that are common to churches, this is the way that we do them. We've, we've looked at two large categories. Worship. What is worship? And, and, and how do we do worship at, at Applewood Community Church? What, what drives that worship? What is distinctive about it? Family. We've talked about being family. We say that a lot. Our families are healthy and families aren't healthy. Sometimes families are just families. And we've talked about what it means to be a healthy family. Dealing honestly and with grace and, and with truth uh, with, with one another as the people of God. And so this morning, I want to add to that list another distinctive. It's the confession of who Jesus is. Now, that may sound a little bit odd to you. Remember, my premise all along has been that, that, that the enemy in his, in his ploy, the enemy in prowling around, as Peter says, is always looking for ways to distract and to prompt, to, to, to pounce and, and, and to devour God's people. And so I've suggested to you from the get-go that we need to be intentional about nurturing these things that God has blessed us with so that that we are not open and susceptible to to things being changed by the enemy because ultimately his goal is that God will be mocked that we as as his people will not live as if grace really is amazing and that gives the enemy and his hordes the opportunity to to mock God and I don't want 
the enemy to have an opportunity in this particular truth or distinctive of who Jesus is. You may think to yourself, really? I mean, could that, could that change? That The church is about Jesus. We just heard Jesus say that to Peter. It's his church. Uh, how do you have a church that does not affirm Jesus? Let me explain kind of what I'm thinking here. It's, it's not that I'm concerned that we would ever as a church depart from our belief in Jesus, but what I, what I am concerned about is that, that we might be subtly, unknowingly moved away from what I consider to be the fundamental truth of who Jesus is. That truth ought to be, I think, the thing that pops into our minds before anything else when someone asks us, who is Jesus? The fundamental truth ought to be popping into our head, who is Jesus? We'll get to that in just a second. Andrew Greeley expresses the same concern, I think, in some fairly provocative words when he says, much of the history of Christianity has been devoted to domesticating Jesus, to reducing that elusive, enigmatic, paradoxical person to dimensions we can comprehend, understand, and convert to our own purposes. Much of the history of Christianity has been devoted to domesticating Jesus, making him understandable, eliminating the mystery, using Jesus for our purposes. What a statement. The idea, I think, of domesticating Jesus is, is something that, that God's people do. Now, I don't think that we do it intentionally, but I think more often it's, it's unintentional. Unintentional, we, we make Jesus just a little more tame. We want to make Jesus just a little bit safer. We want to lessen the demands. We, we want to make him someone that, that we can be a bit more comfortable with. And perhaps most significantly, we make him into someone that we can talk about without offending others. You think? I think we do. I think we do, and, and, and we don't mean to. We don't want to offend others, and, and, and in an effort not to offend, I think we can steer away from what I believe is the fundamental truth, and we're going to come to that in our, in our reading this morning. We're going to read from Colossians chapter 1. It'll be a familiar text for many of us. I want you to, to listen to the, to the sweeping, lofty language that Paul uses to describe Jesus. The, the hugeness. Is that a word? Hugeness? I don't even know if I can use that to, you know, can language be huge? But it is. Paul, Paul is struggling in this text. To, to get at something, someone that is just far greater than we can imagine. So, listen to the hugeness of the language and, and, and see if you can identify the fundamental truth. Alright? 
Listen to the huge language. See if you can identify the, uh, the fundamental truth. Let's stand and read Colossians. Chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 15. Here we go together. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen to that. Go ahead and be seated. Okay, ask your neighbor. So what's the fundamental truth? about Jesus that Paul is communicating. What did you hear? Ask your neighbor. What did you hear? Okay, you ready? What did your neighbor tell you? What, do you? what do you think is the fundamental truth? What is Paul struggling to communicate here? What did you hear? Laurie? Okay, 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 yeah, he's, he, he's wrestling, okay, so what do you think, fundamental truth, Jesus is God, does that ring true with what you just read, okay, add to it, oh man, some of us are a whole lot more appreciative of that than others, aren't we, oh man, <laughs> all in favor, <laughs> yeah, he saved us. So, God saved us. Diane? Good, good, good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Dale? Mentally, 
If someone was asking you, who is Jesus? Oh, okay, good, 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 all right. Okay. Okay, okay, all right, good, good. What else? What else? Anything else you want to add? Paul? Okay, okay, excellent. It's, it's probably safe to say that, that Paul is trying to communicate here that Jesus is a big deal. Would you buy that? Yeah. And, and the language that, that he uses to describe Jesus, his, his, his power, his position, his authority, God's, God's purposes... We could, we could be very orthodox and should be very orthodox and say that the purpose of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in, in the decision and the process of, of salvation to, to save sinful people. In a sentence, Jesus is, is God sent to save sinful people. So when that young man asked me in his colorful way, who the hell is Jesus? Without knowing it, he linked two words that get at the fundamental truth. Jesus came to save sinful people from hell. Thank God. He did. He did. And, and did you notice in, in, the, in the reading the, the, the amount of words that Paul used to describe Jesus and the amount of words that he used to describe us? Did you hear that? He went on and on and on about Jesus. And then said, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through his death, to present you whole in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Eight lofty statements about Jesus. Two or three statements about us and all of humanity. Paul goes on and on about Jesus. And the two statements about us are that we are alienated from God, we are enemies in our minds because of evil behavior. came to me this week, I'm thinking that those eight statements or thereabouts um, seem like a good New Year's sermon series, don't you think? Um, Let me read those to you again. Think about these as you hear them. He is the image of the invisible God. Wow. You want to know God? We've talked about this before. Hebrews chapter 1 emphasizes this. You want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? Your clearest look is Jesus. Firstborn over all creation. Diane referred to that. that that's, that's the privileges. That's, that's the rights. That's all things are His. All things were created by him and they were created by him and they were created for him that includes every single one of us sitting in here you were created by Jesus and you were created for Jesus he is before all things the the eternality of Jesus 
In him, all things hold together. Powerful language, you know, in the, in the original language, it's, it's, it's that sense of things just flying apart, coming loose. If not for Jesus, holding it together. He's the head of the church. He said that to Peter in Matthew that we heard earlier. The beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy, the conqueror of death, the one who puts his stamp of God's authority even on humanity's worst enemy, death. Not only physically, but for eternity. What I want to know is, how in the world do we domesticate this? How is it that we try to make Jesus safe? How is it that we try to make Jesus tame? How is it that we try to, to, to make Jesus more manageable? I think it's a critically important question because in our culture and, and, and in church culture as well, my friends, there are many conversations and ideas about Jesus. And some of the examples that I have read, and, and you know of these as well, there is, um, there's the Republican Jesus. He's against tax increases and activist judges. He's for family values and for owning firearms. There's the Democrat Jesus. He's against Wall Street and Walmart. He's for reducing our carbon footprint and for printing money. There's the therapist Jesus. He helps us cope with life's problems. He heals our past. He tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's the Starbucks Jesus. He drinks fair trade coffee. He loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's Touchdown Jesus. He helps athletes run faster and jump higher than other Christians, and, than non-Christians, and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's the all-you-can-be Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. Forgive me. It was just too irresistible. I know there are gross exaggerations here. But it serves to remind us that there is a temptation in all of us to take Jesus and to align Him with the things that are most important in our lives. And when we do that, we've gotten things a little backwards. We were made in His image and for Him. He's not made in our image and He's not for us. And it's, it's a subtle, sneaky temptation that creeps into all of our lives that we, that we make Jesus more manageable, that we make Jesus perhaps more, more palatable. Did you notice what Paul has done here? He's, he's exploded with the best that he can, the limitations of human language, the glories and the wonder and the power and the mystery of Jesus. And all he has to say about us is that we were enemies of God and alienated from him. The greatness of Jesus and the smallness of humanity. Greatness of Jesus. Let me read again verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Reconciliation was necessary because alienation was a fact. We were alienated. Peace did not exist because we were enemies. And the wow factor that we need to hear in this text is that Paul is going, look what God did for us through Jesus. Wow! We've got to get there. We've we've got to get there in our our thinking about Jesus. Please. My point point this morning is, is not is not to rain on anyone's parade in terms of their relationship with Jesus. I am not mocking anyone's intimacy with Jesus. I believe that Jesus can be our best friend. But He can only be our best friend because first He was our Savior. First, He died a hideous death on the cross because of our sins. I believe that Jesus can be and is our counselor and our encourager. And I believe that that through his love, we can feel better about ourselves. I do believe that. But that can only happen because first he is our savior. And because of what he's done on the cross, we are reconciled to the God who created us. Those are significant points of our lives' experiences. What I want to challenge us all with is just simply that most fundamental truth and significant starting point for answering the question, who is Jesus? He is God. He is Savior. He was sent to redeem lost, sinful, rebellious people who were alienated from God and they deserved the punishment of hell. Our relationship with and our worship of Jesus starts right there. Who is Jesus? Personalize it. He is God in the flesh who saved me from my sins. Praise be to God. Jesus is so much more than we know. He's so much more than we even knew that we, we needed. Do you see how important it is to be intentional in our thinking about Jesus as Savior? The enemy would long for us to, to just drift away and to no longer talk about things like sin. That's yucky. I don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about terrible images of things like hell. That's not comfortable. Certainly not politically correct. Read the story of of a worship pastor who was rebuked one time in his church because they sang a song about the blood of Jesus. (coughs) And he was told that we won't sing songs about that archaic expression any longer. Really? Well, what was that that flowed from his body on the cross? Do you see how subtle it can become? 
we need to be intentional about remembering who Jesus is first and foremost. He, he is God. And He came to save people who desperately needed saving. See, we can, we can think in terms of, of Jesus as our, as our friend and our closest confidant and our counselor and our source of encouragement. And again, all those things are, are only possible because first of all, he is our savior. When, when all else fails and when my feelings betray me and, and when God seems distant to me and, and my world is full of doubt and things around me are just falling to pieces, what do we do then? We, we cling, we cling to the unchanging truth of Scripture that God sent His Son to be our Savior, to reconcile us to Himself, to save us from sin and from hell. I love the way that, that Ravi Zacharias puts it. He says, faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in His power so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Amen? Amen. So, so tell me, tell me, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Yeah, he's Savior. Who's Jesus? He's Savior. Did we need saving? Amen. Jesus. God in the flesh. Saving people who Paul describes as enemies and alienated from themselves, from their sin, from hell. It's it's an awesome truth. May the Spirit open up our hearts and our minds perhaps in new ways to, to hear that truth so that it, it, becomes, it becomes that foundational truth to which we, we bring the answer to who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We come to celebrate at the table of our Lord this morning. We celebrate and we give thanks for the one who said to his disciples that night, this is my body given for you. When you eat this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Jesus said, do this often. Remember me in the midst of life, in the midst of everything that comes at you every day, in the midst of challenging relationships and in the midst of your workload and in the midst of sickness and in the midst of hopelessness when everything is crumbling. Remember Jesus represented here in the broken loaf, his body for you and for me saving us from our sins. Jesus said, do this often. Remember me.
And after supper, we're told that he took the cup and he told his disciples, he said, this, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as well and remember me. May we give praise and thanksgiving to God this morning for this cup that represents the blood that washed away our sins. Such familiar language, isn't it? Familiar stuff. And yet, so life-transforming, so, so powerful, so hopefully new every time we do it.